Welcome to the Chief Future Officer podcast. In today's episode, I have with me Glenn Hopper. Glenn is a CFO of Eventus Advisory Group and has more than two decades of experience in leading finance operations for companies. Glenn, great to have you here today. Indus, I really appreciate you having me. And I've got to say, I love the title of the podcast. I, I want to start I, I might start referring to myself as the chief future officer. That sounds really cool. <laughs> I think all of the CFOs are. In fact, I have interacted with many of them and they don't talk numbers only. They talk, hey, how, how I'm going to take my business to the next level. So they come in as partners in crime to the CEOs. So I think the title is very apt in my opinion as well. Yeah, love it. So Glenn, let's just dive in. Um, you run this company called Eventus. You're the CFO. What is your day ops looks like? What do you do? So Eventus actually provides CFO services to other companies. We have a mix of clients that uh, range uh, from public to, to private, uh, micro caps. We have pre-revenue companies and, and going concern companies. And they bring Eventus in when um, it could be they're getting ready to raise money, they're looking for private equity, or they're looking for a, a bank loan, or they're looking to do M&A activity. And they may bring us in for a short project, hey, get us audit ready so that we can talk to bankers and to investors. Or they may say, we need financial services um, and we need every the full CFO, controller, senior accountant, you know, bookkeeper. We can provide all that level of, of service and it's tailored for what our customers need. And how long have you been doing this? <laughs> so interestingly enough, one week right now. <laughs> oh. This is a this is a career pivot for me. Well, not a career. It's a it's a different approach to being a CFO because I've been with uh, let's see, I've been with four different companies over the last fifteen years as a CFO, and I've been laser locked in seventy hours a week, whatever, on a single company, and now I'm taking everything that I've learned from those years of experience and being able to apply it to more companies. And I'm, I've got to say, I'm, I'm very green in this position, very new to it, but I am already, I can tell how this is going to be a constant supply of challenges and fun things to overcome and exposure to stuff that I haven't seen before and a chance to work. I, I've been in the startup space, so I've had very small finance groups and I've, it's basically been whatever I can pick, that's what we're going to do. And, you know, this is my best guess, uh, hopefully a little more than I guess, my best informed decision. And I'm just making these decisions on my own. But now I'm surrounded by people who have as much experience as I do and coming from different industries. And it's going to be really cool to see the way people have solved similar problems. And this is a great next step in just continuing kind of lifelong education. So I'm very excited about uh, what we're doing here and the opportunity for me to just see all kinds of new, cool, uh, different industries and verticals. Very nice. Take us down the memory lane. You graduated and then did some gigs or jobs at a few companies and now Eventus. So what has been the last decade and a half of your career been like? 
Yeah. So the last decade and a half has all has all been CFO roles at startups. I'm going to go a couple of steps back because I think um, that's the weirder part and maybe the more interesting part. <laughs> so um, I started out my professional career as a journalist. Um, and I, at the time, thought... Um, I'm, I wanted to write fiction. I wanted to, I, I just loved writing and I thought this is the career for me. And um, then I got married and realized it's going to be hard to have this career and, <laughs> and support a family. Uh, so I reevaluated, went to business school and uh, switched out of journalism, but never lost the love for it. And that's really been a big part. And we can talk about this later, but uh, that's been a big part of my career is what I learned as a journalist and studying to be a journalist. The way to communicate has been invaluable to me. As, as the CFO numbers guy, if you also have the communication background behind it and can tell your story, it's really shaped the way that, um, that I work as a CFO. Um, but I guess just I'll, I'll give you the quick version here. Went as a journalist, went to business school. My first job out of business school, though, I was a product manager um, for a telecommunications company. And I, this was the late 90s, early 2000s. And I managed a product that now is very commonplace. But we we were actually ahead of the curve on this. My product was a template-driven website builder. So this, I mean, imagine in 2000, there was no WordPress or anything like that. And I thought it was the coolest product in the world. And I was super excited about it. But um, when I was managing the product, we had very, very little budget allocated to this uh, product. And there was so much I wanted to do with it. And here I was fresh out of business school. And I thought, well, I know a thing or two about budgets. So (laughs) I went to the marketing VP and I said, Hey, you don't have a budget guy. Let me be your budget guy. My whole idea was I could funnel more funding to my my product. And I was, (laughs) and I was able to, and it was, I I really enjoyed it. But, um, the COO after a couple of meetings with him decided, um, I need one of those meaning me. (laughs) And he, uh, he, he offered me a position to basically run his, his budget and to act as a liaison between operations and finance who in, in this particular company at this particular time, there were silos. Uh, accounting was very protective of their information. Operations was being held accountable for what they had to do, but they were having to do it without visibility. So my first finance role was really built on the, representing and expressing the needs of operations to the finance team, kind of translating between ops and finance and uh, advocating for the budget needs that we had. And that just like, I mean, I'm, I'm sort of building a, a pathway here, but the journalism for the communicating coming into finance from the ops side gave me the outside looking in. So jur- or, uh, finance to me wasn't this ivory tower. It was a team player that was part of it. And because I came in through that, it's made my approach to working with other department heads and working with the CEO and everyone in the company a lot different, I think, than if I'd just gone that uh, finance path. So pretty interesting pivot. So from journalism to ops to finance, and of course, you are a customer of finance. But I, I want to come back to that. But I'm curious about your the template driven website builder. What happened to that? 
So early 2000s, telecommunications, we were merging with companies every, almost every quarter. I mean, it was just a matter of who can get the biggest, the fastest. And um, we'd go through and it was usually a merger of equals. And uh, it was a knife fight to see which management, which philosophy was going to come out on top. And at some point along the way, um, whatever, uh, you know, after some merger, the the new management team decided that that wasn't an important part of our uh, of our product set. And it's funny when I think about it now, I mean, telecommunications is a, it's a commodity basically at this point, you know, it's just connectivity and, um, you know, voice and internet service. And uh, that was something that could have been a real differentiator. And you look at the site, you know, the few sites that are out there now, not to throw a commercial for either of them, but there's just a handful of them and they're a, a b- booming business. So I don't know. I think maybe they gave up on it a little too soon. And maybe if I hadn't jumped ship and gone to finance, maybe I could have fought that good fight and it'd still be around. I don't know. <laughs> You'd have been continuing as as a product manager or an entrepreneur doing that website builder because it's you know billions of dollars in revenue for the likes of Squarespace, Wix, and and many others. And WordPress.com now powers one third or a quarter of the internet, all the websites. So that's Amazing. Yeah. yeah. So your grad school remained in finance concentration or something else happened? So I have two master's degrees and, uh, and a graduate certificate. I'm, a, I'm one of these people that can't stop going to school. I'm actually <laughs> really trying to figure out right now why I shouldn't do this online Stanford program that's a grad certificate in uh, decision analytics um, and I think the thing that's going to stop me is I have two kids in college right now and I'm paying their tuition, so I don't need to also pay mine. But, uh, yeah, I got an MBA from Regis University and then I got a master's in finance from Harvard with a, a grad certificate in business analytics. And I just did the uh, business analytics grad certificate in 2018, I guess. Got it. And you are pretty sure you're going to continue the career of finance because I was looking at your LinkedIn and you're playing with chat GPT and it's APIs now. Well, so <laughs> I've been, <laughs> I've been on this journey and it goes all the way back to my days in telecom when I couldn't get access to this information from accounting and we were having to manually track all this financial data that we couldn't just, you know, there was the capability was there, but we, there was a gatekeeper that was keeping us from getting access to this information. And my origin story came out of one of the biggest crises of my professional career, where we had some bad financial numbers leading right into an investor meeting in, in the early two thousands when we had to be spot on on budget. And we, anyway, it caused a, a big um, problem that I thought at that point well, maybe finance isn't a career for me. Maybe I can go back to marketing or maybe I'll become a high school teacher or something. <laughs> it was that bad. It was, uh, uh, but we recovered and I came out of that with senior management understanding the need for this connectivity. And I actually got a, uh, a team uh, of business intelligence people and we got the access that we wanted to the accounting system. And we, started churning out so much data and so much information in as close as, you know, this is still early 2000s. So, you know, some, not everything was real time back then, but, you know, overnight we were pulling data. We had uh, streamlined our procurement processes, our inventory management. And we just, it, I guess because I came in through that sort of FinOps side 
um, where I was seeing the needs of operations and need ac- needing access to this financial information that as I moved out of the operation side and strictly into finance, I realized that, you know, and if you think about finance now, we, we track in, in everywhere I've been, and I think it's, it's fairly common now, but not just the financial metrics, but uh, the f- finance department tracks operational metrics and all that. And the information that you can get from these systems uh, from them talking to each other is all data you can use to build more complex models, more accurate models, and really refine what you're reporting, not just on the financial side, but on the operation side. And when you're all the metrics you can think of of the business that have a financial component, it's crucial to be able to tie that information together. So to me, technology and finance have been in lockstep. And uh, so every position, finance position I've been in, I've waded my way into um, the operation side and into the IT side so that I can get the access to the systems that I want because that's going to inform financial decisions. Interesting. And how did you build it? Like what tools did you use just in case other CFOs are listening to you? Yeah, so really it's been, we, I've done it several ways. One is just, you know, through APIs and getting information to pass. And obviously as the finance guy, I'm not the expert on APIs, but I can speak enough of the language that I can go to IT and to operations and to whoever I, I need to, to talk about getting access to the systems. And then basically having this unique identifier where you can, whether somebody's a, from the time that they're a prospect all the way through you win the sale to now they're in billing, they're in your project management system all the way through billing. And, you know, when they eventually churn or whatever the, whatever the customer full history of the customer life cycle is, I think that the, there are points at every step along the way that we need access to. So th- that happens in different ways. Um, one is APIs and getting systems to talk, or it's just, <laughs> you know, uh, yanking data out of one system if it's not talking to the other finding some identifier so that you can put it in a matching table and match it up to data from another system. So that it can be really ugly and clunky. So, but that's always my first sort of proof of concept. And then I say, look, if these talk to each other, look what we could do. So I'm real big on the first thing I do when I come in is like, let me just do a proof of concept here so I can show you how great our reporting would be if we had access to this data. And that's how you win the technical resources over so that you can actually get what you want. But, you know, and then there's, there's always the dream of we're going to have the one CRM or ERP to rule them all. And it's going to have everything about our customers in this one system. And I think people end up, you know, you still have multiple systems uh, where different information lives. But in the process of implementing an ERP system, if you are looking at this full picture end to end of, of customers and all your processes and activities, then even though they're not the same system, and even if you don't have a data lake or data warehouse or whatever, that you can still get access to the information. So it's not, unfortunately, it's not a one size fits all for how you get access to this data, but you have to be, I always say, knowledgeable enough to be dangerous, like in <laughs> so that you can speak the language and talk about what you want and be able to justify it and explain, I'm now asking for more resources for back office operations and for finance, which many people still, despite our best efforts, still view us as a cost center, you know? (laughs) So it's very hard to get resources. So it's all about speaking the language, getting that proof of concept, explaining why you need it, 
and then politicking and, and getting the resources you need to make it happen. Got it. That's wonderful. I, when I was looking at your LinkedIn and I saw some commentary around ChatGPT, I first thought, oh, you're just, you know, sharing an opinion. But when I was digging deeper, like, oh, you did an end-to-end project. That was like an awesome <laughs> surprise. Yeah. So that end-to-end project is actually a perfect example of what I was talking about with proof of concept. Because, it, so my project was, I want to show how much more powerful we could be as a finance department. And I know, you know, especially big companies, but we're, finance departments aren't just working in Excel anymore. There's so much off the shelf software that there's really cool stuff you could do. But I wanted to take it down to the fundamental level and say, I have three years of financial statements from this company and they're just sitting in spreadsheets. So how could I make this, how could I show the value of if we could automate this and dump it into a system that uh, would do some of the basic preliminary analysis on the financials for us. So, but I, and I, I keep saying I know enough to be dangerous. If I were ever sitting in front of a blinking cursor, having to write code, somebody would have made a terrible mistake. <laughs> That's not where, <laughs> where I want to be. But again, I know enough to be dangerous. So I had this idea, I'm going to do a whole project where I'm not going to write a single line of code. It's all going to be chat GPT prompts. So this wasn't me like dumping my data, you know, into chat GPT and saying, Hey, what do you think about this? This was getting chat GPT to write code. And I set up a project in, in Google Colab and I used SQLite databases, just trying to keep it as simple as possible and replicable. So if anybody else wanted to do the project, they could follow along and they could do the same thing that I did. And I even shared out my financial statements. So if you, uh, you know, and it's on my GitHub, my project is out there. So somebody else could replicate the same project. But the idea was take the financial statements, dump them in a database, have a Python program that just goes through and finds variances, you know, uh, month over month or compared to budget or whatever it is, finds correlations that we might not have thought, you know, our human eyes, we might not realize there's a, I need to come up, I need to have like a canned uh, example of this, but I'm thinking, oh, I'm looking at sales of this product line and then I'm looking at, um, there seems to be a correlation between when we sell this for whatever reason, our uh, salary and wages line goes up. So we're, you know, whatever it is, it's a correlation we may not have seen. Uh, The program will go through and just identify these correlations, spit them out in like a little heat map that says, um, you know, these items are the most correlated um, in your financial statement. And it's it's things that we, you know, when we go through, we kind of look at uh, the monthly financials in a certain way. We know things we look at, um, every month and we can kind of get stuck in our rut. But I was showing if you can automate this and get that first pass done, then it frees up time that takes you away from doing this sort of high level skim. If the system pulls it out, then you can spend more time on that deeper dive and on that analysis and maybe chasing things that you didn't realize like, oh, there is a correlation between these two accounts. Let's see what that is and see how we can capitalize on it. So yeah, that so that whole project it it took a while and it would have been quicker, but I was using ChatGPT when it first launched and it was down all the time because <laughs> it was getting overloaded. I feel like I would have had it done in like four days if I could have had uh, unlimited access to ChatGPT. But it, it took a few weeks because I had to work around when it was available. But it was uh, it was a really fun project and it was a great proof of concept. Now, do I think any company's actually going to have their 
actual financial data in Google Colab and SQLite databases on a Google Drive? No. <laughs> but <laughs> if I were if I were arguing for that to my CIO or to you know anyone else on the management team of look how cool this is, that's something that I, I could just run with dummy data because we all know the issues. We don't want to just be uploading our proprietary and uh, you know, actual company data uh, into the cloud somewhere that's not secure, but for a proof of concept, then when I go and and say, we want to do this, then I've got a working model of it and you can show the value. And that's kind of, it was just another one of a thousand projects I've probably done in my career trying to win support for something that I want to do to link, uh, to get more, more into the finance tech stack. Got it. Yeah, thanks for explaining that. I want to pivot to something even more interesting. I saw that you wrote this book called The Deep Finance. What motivated you? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, you can tell I'm, uh, because, because of my long rambling responses, <laughs> I'm very passionate about this, and it's the exact same thing. And I wrote that book in 2018, and it's just, I, w- I was beginning to see how machine learning and the predictive abilities that are out there could really change. And I'm, I came up through the FP&A side, so I'm much more, I mean, that's w- where my real passion is. But seeing, thinking about what we as financial analysts do and have done in our career, um, the, I mean, I, just, I think about models I built in the past where you just, okay, we'll just do linear regression. Or sometimes you get crazy and do some kind of, polynomial regression to try to figure out, you know, some kind of complex uh, uh, part of the financials you want to model. But when I started learning more about uh, what data scientists were doing and what these machine learning algorithms are doing and thinking about the different data that they had and, uh, and how they were able to use both internal and external data to find these correlations to build these crazy models, I thought, we as finance people, you know, you, you pick your lane and you go down that lane and you think I'm going to, I'm going to get as much depth as I can in the field that I'm in. But, and I, I think this would apply not just to finance people, but to marketing people to no matter what profession you're in, if you're not keeping up with technology, with as fast as it's moving, you're going to get left behind. So the whole idea of that book was, okay, finance people, accounting and finance has changed through the years. I mean, you know, going back to uh, paper ledgers, to uh, desktop uh, accounting software, to cloud accounting software, to the technologies that have come along uh, since then, we have to change with the times. And if we don't, we're not going to be making use of these uh, very powerful tools that are out there. So the idea of the book was to get people who maybe are reticent or scared of the change to understand what the technology is out there. And it's just real high level. It's not super technical, but it goes through, this is what AI is. This is what machine learning algorithm, which is what machine learning is. And it go, I go through and I give a bunch of different algorithms and just in layman's terms, say what they are. And then I talk about what you can do with that, how you can go from descriptive analytics to predictive an- analytics um, and what you can do if you have this data and then really the second half of the book is the, the other part I've, I've been talking about is how do you get buy-in from 
the rest of your team from the rest of the company. And it talks about how to build a data science team or, you know, with limited resources, what you can do and how to get buy-in. Um, and I'm a big agile guy. So I talk about small wins that you can get with those proof of concept projects and to get more people on board with it. So it's really, that was supposed to be the Bible for my approach to getting the finance and accounting departments access to the technology we need to be able to do our job the way that we should be able to in this amazing age of, of AI advancements. That's wonderful. From, from desktop to cloud to now AI, do you think the CFO community in general should be worried about, uh, and this is very rhetorical, but hey, AI is taking over and you know, we're going to be jobless. And now if majority of the problems are being solved through this conversational interface, is the job still going to be relevant of a finance person? Strategic, highly skilled, uh, high-level jobs will remain to me for the first, until we get to the singularity, I guess, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, what is going to go away? And this is, I always, this is a good time for me to say this. Um, when you talk about all this automation that's out there, it's easy to say, and especially if you have the, oh, finance and accounting, that's a cost center. We need to minimize that as much as possible. It would be easy to say, oh, you don't need people to do that anymore so we can cut your headcount and we, we're just going to automate this, um, you know, automate everything until there's nothing left to, to automate. Um, what I always argue is think of the spend, if you're doing it right, if you're not building out having you know, if you're not expanding the team that has to enter in your accounts payable or your do your invoices every month or whatever the case is, if you're not building out a team that's using bad technology, then think about what you're doing as an investment and not just an investment in the finance group, but in transforming your company into a data-driven organization. And I argue, I, I guess it's in my own self-interest, but that finance should be the the linchpin of that and where this digital transformation is, ha is happening because we have this objective eye on all the parts of the business. We're used to working with the data. If we could get the technology, we could do even more with the data that we have. And that automation and data collection are to me, are they're joined at the hip. They're, you know, completely linked. So if you can get the finance department to run this, I say, okay, we're getting rid of positions that are doing mindless work, uh, you know, just your basic data entry. That that that's it's just like manufacturing. It's the easiest, most repetitive tasks should be automated because that's not a good use of anyone's time. It's not a good use of uh, the company's resources. So if you can get rid of those people who are doing mindless tasks and upskill them, or if they don't want to be upskilled, I mean, it, that's the sad truth is they may have to be replaced, but either upskill the people that you have or bring or right size and right skill your team, then you, then finance and accounting aren't just the keepers of the scorecard who are reporting, you know, and I, I think most CFOs at this point don't see their job this way. You're not just reporting on, historical information or talking about your performance to budget, you're really looking forward and looking strategic. So if you don't have to spend all this time doing bank reconciliations and journal entries and running depreciation, that's all stuff that can be automated. Then think about how you could focus your attention 
on not just maintaining, you know, keeping the score, but actually turn those people to focused on strategic decisions and being able to compile this information. So to me, more it's, it's not about humans or machines. It's about humans and machines. And I, I do, I write about that all the time about how this is, if we do this correctly, it just gives everybody more fulfilling work and gives the company better results. And that's really, <clears throat> in it, maybe I'm overly optimistic and maybe, you know, in 10 years, we're all going to be uh, clamoring <laughs> for universal basic income because we're out of work. But that's, you know, for the short term, I do see that being really what's happening for people who are doing this right. At least what happened in the last 96 hours uh, with Silicon Valley Bank, I don't think anybody's job's going anywhere. <laughs> yeah. with, the, with the muscle required to manage that madness, don't you think so? Yeah, I mean, it's, and there is still, I mean, you know, <laughs> I, I couldn't imagine typing in the prompts to uh, chat GPT to ask it how to handle this situation. <laughs> Just have it start hallucinating something. And, I, you know, I, I don't know what it would be. Yeah, but there, I mean, business problems are complex. And I, um, I, I love the idea of data-driven organizations but as of today, I mean, who knows, 12 months from now, we might be at GPT-8 that can do all of our jobs <laughs> better than we can. But uh, in the current environment, m the complex problems, you know, get the data, use the systems that are out there to help you. But it's, it requires human decision making, ultimately. Got it. To me, you sound very naturally curious, and correct me if I'm wrong, you know, from, you wrote a book from, uh, you tinkering with uh, GPT and it's all, it's AI. You pivoted your career. Were you like this when you were growing up as a kid or something just got programmed along the way? I, that's a good question. I don't, um, when I was a kid, uh, I wanted to be everything from evil Knievel to... Uh, <laughs> To, I think I probably at some point decided I was going to be Picasso and or, you know, the president. I don't know. <laughs> but I did. I, um, I, it, that curiosity comes back to there were some things when I was raised. I remember, uh, I, I don't know how old I was. I mean, super young. I don't know, four or five years old and coloring in a coloring book. And uh, I remember my dad, who was a hippie, and uh, he's <laughs> He said, why are you coloring in a coloring book? You're coloring in someone else's lines. And he got me like a ream of typing paper. And he was like, make your own lines. Don't draw what other people tell you to. And that, I, that's one lesson. My dad had a bunch of terrible lessons too that I, he wasn't always the best, uh, <laughs> the best advisor. But that particular one, I mean, it's sort of, that's just one example, but shapes the way you think and the way you, you go through. And I think that that curiosity has always been there, whether I was... Uh, thought I was training to become a ninja or uh, spending seven years in undergrad trying to figure out, you know, changing majors four times, trying to figure out what I was, uh, what I was going to do. I think it is just a, always just curious and, and trying to figure things out and figure, I'm still trying to, I'm 50 years old, still trying to figure out what I'm going to do when I grow up. That's, that's very profound. Uh, make your own lines. I, I love it. And don't draw on other people's lines. I just scribbled it. I'm going to listen to it yeah. again. Who has been your source of inspiration all these years? You know, I, and I heard you ask this question to your podcast guests before, and I don't, I don't have a single person that I can answer. There, you know, in different parts of my life, there have been different people. I've certainly had people who have been business 
mentors to me. And whether they were actively trying to teach me or they were just running me through the paces, I learned a lot from bosses through the years. I think the biggest, um, my first CFO role was where I was the buck stops here guy. And, um, uh, the lead investor at, at that company was, uh, super, super smart VC guy, um, that had been in the VC business for 30 years at that point. And I was young as a, for a CFO at, at that point. And I would go into uh, the board meetings and he would rake me over the coals and it was, I was scared <laughs> to death of him, but that was, uh, you know, 15 years ago and he's, uh, long since retired and he and I still stay in touch. You know, I'm several companies removed from, uh, from working in, in any of his companies before, but he's, he showed me, uh, some by explaining things to me and some by holding me accountable. So on the business side, he was, he was probably my single biggest influence. And then, uh, you know, in my life, my most stable and, and, she helps me with all, cause I'm crazy. I'm always doing different things, but my wife is like, she's my rudder and my guide and all that. So, um, I don't know about mentors so much as maybe she, but she does keep me on the rails. She would say that I, she was my mentor probably. <laughs> she's a clinical therapist. So she's my mental health mentor, I guess. Very well put, very well put. So between family, you mentioned two kids in college and then a bunch of these projects going on. How do you stay focused on, on the job that you have to do and remain healthy doing this? Um, I, whether I'm healthy or not probably remains to be seen. I'll tell you <laughs> what I do. On the, so I am, um, I'm a triathlon, a triathlete and a marathon runner. And I'm uh, not as much as I used to, but I do, I'll do probably two triathlons a year, a couple of half marathons and one marathon a year. And I feel like if I can maintain that, then I'm at least, I've got that physical outlet out there. And, uh, those are great sports for people uh, who are uncoordinated like me to do, because I don't have to no hand-eye coordination. Well, I guess I have to be able to ride a bike. That's about as tough as it gets. <laughs> and, yeah. So, and that's, and it's a, a balance. And I think, um, I, I don't sleep a lot, but I, <laughs> except this daylight savings thing we're going through right now is it, every year it gets me a little harder, but, <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I think I just have, I, my brain won't stop. So, uh, I'm uh, always working on something and the, and the physical part of it does, uh, it's probably a good balance to that. Yeah. Hopefully this is the last daylight shift. I think we will do one more and then it's done forever. Um, I hate this, hey, wake up an hour earlier all of a sudden. Yeah, okay, yeah. why? <laughs> um, yeah. And the worst part is not all countries are syncing. So our calendars, which were synced perfectly, now out of sync. There are meeting conflicts and whatnot. So that's kind of absolutely the you know, worst part of this uh, daylight savings change. Do you spend time reading? Do you catch up on books? So here, I read fiction. I do not read a lot of, well, I'll say I've got now, uh, my boss sent me the McKenzie way, which uh, that's going to be assigned to reading. But I, as, as much as I've gone to school and as much, as many case studies as I've read and as, <laughs> as much assigned reading as I've had, reading for me is 
Um, I just read, um, Cormac McCarthy is my favorite author of all time. And he just put out his first book in 15 years, um, called the passenger. It's actually two books. Um, but I, when I'm reading and I do the obligatory, you know, I'll read the economist and Harvard business review and the stuff that I have to, that it feels like part of work. But when I'm, when I really want downtime, I'm going straight to fiction. And if you look, all these books, I'm in my office, but all the books in here, except for the top shelf, those are all fiction books. Well, fiction and poker playing books. But <laughs> That's an interesting combination. Yeah. Yeah. Often, often, more often than not, I get recommendations of business books, finance, and strategy. Um, I don't read fiction anymore. I got to pick that up again because fiction is... You transport yourself in a different world. You're not dealing with your own problems anymore. You're figuring out some other world's problems. So that's amazing. Yeah. And I love movies and, uh, you know, some, most TV shows I don't. But I'm a big fan of film. But um, there's something about just immersing yourself in a fiction book that it really is, especially now that I'm an empty nester, I can spend a whole Sunday afternoon reading fiction on the couch. And that is a perfect, uh, perfect Sunday for me. Wonderful. Where can people find you, Glenn? Um, I, LinkedIn is probably the best. I'm, I've, I've, I've got some other social media accounts, but I don't use them. I'd, uh, LinkedIn is the best place to go if you want to be on social media and not get in an argument with someone. So that's where I, <laughs> I spend my time. Amazing. That's my guest, Glenn, Glenn Hopper. Thank you for listening. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Chief Future Officer podcast. The Chief Future Officer podcast is brought to you by Colum, a CFO's best buddy to buy and manage SaaS. To support this podcast, please like, share, and subscribe to us on your preferred podcast application. Links to previous episodes and the rest of the show notes are in the bio, and i love to have you check out other episodes. Lastly, if you want to be on this podcast or recommend a friend, let us know in the comments below. Thank you.